one of the key things that we're trying to do is get people to understand that being an integrated energy company moving forward means we're developing holistic energy solutions. We aren't a company that just provides oil and gas, right? Just shifting people's mindset from this idea of BP as an oil and gas company to BP as an energy company that is looking at all the ways we play in the entire energy ecosystem and how that energy ecosystem is going to change between now and 2050 as we really start hard and heavy into decarbonization efforts. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Welcome to episode 31 of the program. And what better way to close out the month of March and Women's History Month than with Miss Jane Stricker, Senior Relationship Manager over at BP. We learned a tremendous amount about what BP is doing on the renewable side, what they've been doing on the decarbonization front, how they are working with the city of Houston as part of the Climate Action Plan. And more importantly, Jane, a 20-year veteran of BP, shares with us her thoughts on diversity, female inclusion in the energy business, and more importantly, just her thoughts on mentorship and what's ahead in 2021. It's a fast fascinating interview. It's a lot of information. So please, without further ado, welcome to the program, Miss Jane Stricker. It's not entirely new space for us. When I joined BP in 2000, we started this Beyond Petroleum journey. And I was working in retail at the time. We were actually putting solar panels on the canopies of our gas stations. Uh, And that was part of our first foray into renewable sector. And so it's not new space for us. I think we were probably a little bit ahead of the curve um, and struggled to figure out how to make that work. So I don't think people are particularly surprised. I mean, we, we've got a, a big footprint in wind energy. We've got, you know, nine wind farms in onshore in the U S you know, we've been a, a partner with light source BP for a number of years now. Um, and so this is space that we know and understand. I think what what surprises people is sort of our view of how fast we believe the transition is going to happen. There's a view with, I think, traditional oil and gas companies that are doing the renewable thing for show, but they're still really staying focused on their, their hydrocarbons business. And I think the difference with us is that we've said... We recognize that hydrocarbons are going to be in the mix for, for quite some time, but that, that demand is going to decline. We think that the world is going to electrify and we think renewables will win the day on that. So we're focusing our efforts on maintaining our best hydrocarbon portfolio, but we really are looking at energy as an all, all of the above solution. And so it's not just about hydrocarbons and renewables. It's also about other clean energy technologies. It's about hydrogen. It's about CCUS. It's about that full suite that creates an energy ecosystem versus one versus the other. And I think right now in you hear a lot of it's either or, and we think it's all of the above. And so our strategy is really focused on leveraging that to create those energy ecosystems to serve the customer. 
And you mentioned as far as the energy transition goes, and that's one thing that, you know, Mike and I have learned from talking to folks. And, and I think ERCOT demonstrated this, is, you know, you being here in Houston can, can attest to personally, is that in order for this energy transition to happen, it's going to take working on both sides, on both the renewable as well as the fossil fuel side. And so that's something that you guys, again, it, it's, it's interesting to hear that that's something that you guys are also uh, making sure to kind of push and advocate for as well. Absolutely. I think there's a recognition that industries, cities, countries need to have a range of solutions. It can't just be one solution because we all know when you put all your eggs in one basket, you have a tendency to lose all your eggs if you drop that basket, like we saw with the the ERCOT situation. I think having energy is going to become more localized, it's going to become more integrated, and it's going to become more demand-oriented based on the customer's If we're going to be successful as an energy provider in the future, we've made this pivot over the last year from being an international oil company that provides resources in the upstream and the downstream to wanting to be more focused on being an an integrated energy company that looks at what are the energy solutions that our customers need and how can we best provide those by our entire supply chain, right? So we have hydrocarbons, we have oil, we have gas, we have renewables, we have low carbon solutions, we have digital capability, we bring all of that together and and start to figure out how do you deliver solutions for customers that meet all of their needs, right? Rather than just coming in as one resource that's providing a particular product in a particular range, how do we leverage all of our capability to develop a bespoke solution for a particular city, for a particular industry, for a particular customer? You know, Jane, you mentioned uh, being an international energy company and becoming integrated and a part of this transition. With regards to the integration of renewables, because I know Europe in some ways are ahead of where the U.S. is. Where are you compared to them as far as how far down the line? I'd say we're probably about even, but in different areas. So I'd say um, there's been more of a focus on things like CCUS and, and hydrogen development with projects like Teesside, but our experience in onshore wind in the U.S. is allowing us to expand into offshore wind, both in the U.S. and the U.K. So, you know, we've just announced two new partnerships, one with Equinor and another with a German company to do offshore wind in the North Sea. And so I think, you know, we're leveraging the experience we've gained in the U.S. to allow us to expand our renewables presence in other countries. But LightSource BP has always been one of the largest solar energy producers in Europe and is now one of the largest solar energy producers in in the U.S. as well. So is LightSource BP, is that wholly owned by BP or is that a partnership? Yeah, it's a 50-50B. Okay. Well, very good. Because, you know, um, their name keeps popping up on more and more items. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure that that's been good for the transition for you guys here domestically. Absolutely. And again, it's another tool in our toolbox. So, you know, in the city of Houston, you know, one of the big projects that is key to the city of Houston's climate action plan is this Sunnyside Solar Farm, which if it's developed, will be the largest urban solar farm in the United States. And basically it's taking a... It's like an old landfill site or something like that, wasn't it? It is. It It is an old landfill in the middle of the Sunnyside neighborhood. So if you think about the fact that somebody thought it was okay put a landfill in the middle of the oldest African-American community in Houston. And it sat dormant doing nothing for, for years now since it was shut down. And so there's this idea that if you could take that and put a solar farm on it 
and, and use it to create energy and create value for the city on job development, you know, workforce development opportunities, all of those benefits to the city. LightSource BP has been in conversations with, with BQ Energy, the other developer, to see, do we have capability that we can bring to the table? You know, does BP have capability that we can bring to help move this project along? And so we've been in conversations with the city as this is one of the areas in working with the city on their climate action plan for us to, to explore, you know, where, where can BP bring its capability, its resources, its skills to bear to help the city implement that climate action plan. And when you talk about Sunnyside and like by having that in there as well and, and, and just what that can attract and what kind of not just from an energy standpoint, but just maybe from what an economic uh, and community standpoint could happen as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really the key. And that's why this is such a critical project to the mayor's office and to the, the sustainability office is it's it, it really hits on all the key elements of the mayor's agenda. It's around progressing the energy transition by bringing more renewables into the city. It's around creating a just recovery from COVID, from Harvey, from, from all the, the challenges that we've faced in Houston. And really part of their Complete Communities program, which is, which is really about making sure that as we think about the energy transition, we aren't just thinking about it in, in the neighborhoods with resources. We're also thinking about how do you provide, how do you drive the energy transition into all parts of, of Houston? Because it's, the Climate Action Plan applies to everyone. It is a, a plan that, that everyone has to be a part of in order for it to be successful. Off the cuff, how many job app facilities create and what it's going to do directly for the economy? Have you seen any of those statistics yet? I haven't seen the numbers. I do know that it's intended to, to have the utility scale portion as well as a community scale portion. So it's intended to provide utility scale power into the grid, but also to um, provide community power for the residents. It's going to have an education center for workforce development. And then I know that there will be jobs created. I just don't know what the numbers are on that. So it's in development now. It was just approved by the city council in, I want to say in January. They're sort of working the permits now with ERCOT and working those elements to get to that next phase of development. So it could be Q1 of 2023 probably then, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I'd say probably construction yeah. to start sometime. I, yeah, up and running 2023. You've been here for 12 years now. Like I said, you've worked in a variety of different roles. How did this partnership come about between BP and, and Houston? We've had historically a great relationship with the city of Houston. Houston has been our U.S. hub, particularly for our upstream, but it's become our president of, of BP America is based out of Houston. This is this is our largest U.S. footprint is in Houston. From a job standpoint, from an engagement standpoint, we've always had a particularly good relationship. Uh, I think Mayor Turner understands the importance of the energy industry to the Houston economy. What I found really interesting about the, the climate action plan for the city of Houston was, A, that the city of Houston, which is the energy capital of the world, would have a climate action plan, um, and, and B, that it really has a fantastic focus on workforce development, the energy transition. It, it's not picking winners or losers. It's not saying it all has to be renewable. It also drives things like carbon capture use and storage, uh, hydrogen. You know, it, it sort of takes an all of the above approach with respect to decarbonizing the city. And so it aligned really well with our strategy. Um, you know, in February of 2020, we announced our ambition to get to net zero by 2050. 
in April, the city released its climate action plan and, and set forth their ambition to get to net zero by 2050. And so it was sort of like this match made in heaven of, you know, here's a city that's trying to reach the same goals we're trying to reach. And one of our aims and our 10 aims when we came out with our new aim is to help cities achieve their net zero goals. So for, um, for Houston, as well as for Aberdeen, these are cities that we already have really strong relationships with. They understand the importance of the energy industry. They understand the importance of bringing all the voices to the table, not just, um, you know, not just the community groups, not just the renewables, but also the oil and gas companies, also, you know, the other energy players and, and saying, how do we together solve this problem and, and move down the path, the energy transition? So I think it just made sense and started to talk to them about, you know, how can we support this effort? And what we found was their sustainability office was, was a person of one, Laura Cottingham, who, who essentially created or, or got this climate action plan across the line almost on her own. Really what they needed was support to help implement it. So we've come to the table with funding to support their sustainability team in the implementation of the plan. And then we're their strategic planning partner and technical advisor we work with them to, to look across all four areas of the climate action plan and say, okay, what resources can we bring to the table? How can we help you progress these, these different areas? We're working on exploring ultra-fast EV charging hubs with Uber in the city, things like that, where they've got a goal to get to 30% EV market share by 2030. And we're saying, okay, so, so what resources can we bring? What capability can we bring? to help progress that. They're transitioning their flight duty municipal fleet to EV by 2025. So we're looking at how can we help support that? How can we bring our EV capability? We have a goal to get to 70,000 EV charging units across the world by 2030. And so again, this is around 70,000 by 2030. Um, And so this is really about finding those areas where our goals are aligned and helping progress those things together. What are some other things that might surprise them when you find out that, you know, the Houston, the city of Houston is trying to transition or is something from an energy efficiency standpoint that, you know, the average person may think, man, I didn't, I didn't realize that. From a BP perspective, there are a number of partnerships that we've entered into recently, not just in Houston, but, but elsewhere to really drive forward in the energy transition. I think our partnership with Equinor to do offshore wind development in, in New York and uh, Massachusetts is key I think, you know, our partnership with EMBW in in the UK to do offshore wind development, we're working with Orsted to develop green hydrogen at one of our refineries in Germany. And so really exploring a number of different areas. I think I mentioned, you know, LightSource BP was just announced um, that they're going to to provide nearly half of the, the Pennsylvania state government's electricity through a power purchase agreement for solar power. We're looking in a number of different areas. We announced a partnership with Quadlines earlier this year where we're going to develop sustainable aviation fuels and help them with their carbon management. You know, so we're looking at not only cities, but also at industries that have decarbonization challenges, very specific decarbonization challenges. If you think about steel, cement, airline industry, all those industries that rely heavily traditionally on fossil, and there isn't a clear path through renewables for, for a lot of those industries. So how do we bring things like hygiene, like CCUS, and some of our other capabilities to bear to help those types of industries decarbonize? 
I'm sitting here listening to you talk, Jane. Nothing surprises me that BP does because they've always been a world leader in the energy sector, okay? So being in the energy business, this does not surprise me. But I have a feeling some of our listeners that on the podcast that are not necessarily in the energy space, but they're very intrigued about renewable and they come to listen to our podcast. I think they're going to be surprised as to how involved BP is in the renewable space. Because I think that average person just thinks of BP as oil and gas. And so I think that's what's going to make this kind of a fascinating listen for the non-energy professionals listening to our podcast this week. So I'm really glad you came on to talk about all this. So this is, this is good stuff. Thank you so much for all this. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, I think, um, you know, when I started with BP 21 years ago, I was in retail. So the only thing I knew, and it's a huge organization, right? So right. I was doing strategy and planning for gas station development. I had no concept of sort of the bigger BP. And I've been truly fortunate in my career to have been able to move from, from downstream marketing into corporate finance, corporate governance, and then into upstream managing different activities, working on the CCUS study that we did with the Department of Energy. Those things have given me a view of a much bigger BP. And so even within our organization, depending on where you work and and what type of job you have, you don't always recognize how big of an organization we are, how much capability we have, and how many different things that we're doing. Uh, and so I think for, for anyone, whether they're inside the company or inside the industry, it's easy to get familiar with the one thing you know that the company does and have that always be your frame of reference. And I think for us right now with this new strategy, one of the key things that we're trying to do is get people to understand that being an integrated energy company moving forward means we're developing holistic energy solutions. We aren't a company that just provides oil and gas, right? Just shifting people's mindset from this idea of BP as an oil and gas company to BP as an energy company that is looking at all the ways we play in the entire energy ecosystem and how that energy ecosystem is going to change between now and 2050 as we really start hard and heavy into decarbonization efforts. Not to say you guys are different than other folks, but like I said, being an integrated energy company and again, leveraging the information, data and y'all's experiences, you're able to take this holistic approach to decarbonization. Yeah, absolutely. It it comes from 100 years of experience in oil and gas. That translates into a lot of other areas. It translates into hydrogen. It translates into carbon capture using storage, particularly when you start thinking about large scale geologic storage of carbon emissions, either offshore or onshore. You know, it's sort of the reverse of what the oil industry has been in the past. And so taking that capability and figuring out for those hard to decarbonize areas, recognizing that we aren't going to go fossil fuel free anytime in the near future, but we still need to find a way to deal with the emission. It's not about eliminating the sources of energy. It's about eliminating the emissions, right? And so having that portfolio that allows us to develop holistic, integrated solutions to meet the needs of our customers, be they cities, be they industries, um, you know, that's really what we're focused on. And, and how do you fit all those different pieces together? So, you know, if you think about something like building optimization, it's not just about reducing the energy usage in the building. It's what's the source of energy for that building? Can that building become a source of energy storage for the building to manage the supply and demand issues associated with the grid as we start to feed more renewables in, how do we manage all of that 
to create an integrated solution that leverages the energy supply and makes it available at the time that it's being demanded. All of that is incredibly complicated, but so are all of the upstream oil and gas projects that we've been doing historically for 100 years, right? It's figuring out that complexity and saying, how do you take the skill set we have here and bring it over here to bear in a new way and really changing the way that we look at the problem and thinking about it differently and thinking about how do you bring the right set of solutions to bear. You were a part of the 2019 Carbon Capture Use and Storage Study with the U.S. Department of Energy. What did you guys learn from that study with the U.S. Department of Energy and what are some of the information you've been able to take from that to move forward? The biggest aha moment for me in that study was recognizing that the U.S. was already the world leader in carbon capture, use, and storage. The vast majority of the global CCUS were already happening here in the U.S. 25 million tons per annum of CO2 is already being stored through projects that are, that are happening. We have 5,000 miles of CO2 pipelines already in place in the U.S. We're doing this here. We have the capability. We have the technology. The biggest challenge is figuring out how do you make it economic and how do you put the right the right pieces of the business model together to get it moving forward and and you know how do you solve some of those regulatory challenges that are limiting our ability to sort of do carbon capture using storage at scale and so working that project was a recognition I think for a lot of people because it was so broad there were over 300 participants from over 100 different organizations and it was industry it was academia, it was NGOs, it was government. Environmental Defense Fund was, was on the steering committee for this study. Uh, so it, it really was the most comprehensive study on carbon capture use and storage that's ever been done. And recognition that everybody sees the value of it. Current administration is really starting to get on board with this idea that it does have a role to play, particularly if we want to start decarbonizing fast. You can only add so much renewables at any given point in time. If we really want to make a dent in the industries, like I said, that are really hard to decarbonize, this is the only way to get there. The IPCC says it's the only way to get there. The IEA says it's the only way to get there. It has to be part of that toolkit. And I'll go back to, we tend to talk about oil and gas and talk about renewables. What we should be talking about is how do you create a low carbon energy system? And that includes all of the above. And so I think for us, the learning from that study was, A, carbon capture use and storage is key to being able to decarbonize in the near term. The U.S. is already the world leader in it, and it can be a key tool in the toolbox for helping to address really those those hard-to-abate emissions like the ones coming from industry, where we don't today have a solution for how do you create those products like cement and steel without a hydrocarbon industry. You're a member of the Women's Council on Energy and the Environment. It's Women's History Month here in March. 20 years you've been in the energy business. Where are we at right now with uh, women in the energy space? I think it's really interesting because it feels like to me the last two years have really started to shift the mark. I have spent my career, and in my career before being in BP was in retail, which is predominantly female. So coming into BP 20 years ago, being one of the only women in almost every meeting I went into felt very odd to me, but you just sort of get used to that. So that's the way it is. But over the last few years, it feels like it's really shifted. I mean, I think about the webinars that I've been in, the events that I've attended, the conversations that I'm in. I have in multiple occasions been one of several women on a panel for energy discussion, starting to see a lot more women 
out in the forefront, taking the space, looking for those opportunities, driving forward and getting an opportunity to lead in the industry. So it's, I see a lot of positive movement. I mean, obviously we're not where we should be, but change takes time. And I think we all have an obligation to push ourselves forward and to bring the other women in the industry with us. What do you tell young ladies that are up and coming right now in the industry or just in any industry right now? What do, what's kind of your uh, vote of confidence to them? So interesting for me, I think the confidence that I've gained over the last couple of years has come from being involved in sport when I'm not at work. So I, I race bicycles competitively and have for a number of years, Belgium racing, road racing, mountain bike racing. And so I mentor and coach a lot of young women in cycling. And one of the things I always tell them is, you own this sport as much as anybody else. It's You're not tagging along in someone else's sport. I think the same thing we need to remind ourselves quite frequently of in the energy industry is we're not tagging along in someone else's industry. We're not taking over somebody else's space. This is our space. It's our space as much as it's anybody else's. And we should always feel like we belong, regardless of whether we're the only woman in the room or there are 12 women in the room. We belong where we are. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that because it is easy to get this idea that that somehow you're not quite sure how you got there. And sooner or later, somebody's going to figure out that you didn't know what you were doing. But I always tell people that right around that moment that you're certain they're going to figure out you don't know what you're doing is exactly when you figure out what you're doing. And it's all fine. So just having that confidence to know what you need to learn, you'll develop what you need to develop. When I came in 20 years ago, I certainly didn't imagine the career path that I've had, which has been a little bit of everywhere. And I often tell graduates when they come in, because I think a lot of times students coming in, whether they're petroleum engineers or geologists, they come into this industry with this view that their career path has to be this job, then this job, then this job. One of the things I always try to remind them of is be open to moving left or right. It doesn't have to be a straight line path. I've had an incredibly interesting career because I have been willing to step into a space that I didn't anticipate or I didn't know anything about. When I was asked to to lead the study on carbon capture use and storage, I, I didn't even really understand what carbon capture use and storage was, quite honestly. I was a good project manager, and so they asked me to come in to help wrangle this, you know, 300 different people from all these different organizations and try to keep some focus and, and progress the project. And I came out of it on the other end, 18 months later, having written half of the executive summary and supported development in a lot of the different chapters and, and really have become somewhat of an expert on the work. And so take a chance, step into a space you don't know, take an opportunity to learn something new and see where it takes you. And it opens up so many different doors that you didn't even know were a possibility if you were so focused on that next job. Let me ask you this, because you, you know, just, go, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, with regards to the woman in the renewable workforce, that since in this space, municipalities are so involved. It seems like a lot of municipalities I talk to, it's a woman in the position or several women on a committee within the municipality that kind of is driving that city to be green by 2040, 2050, whatever the goals are. And I think because of that, then it's kind of down from the municipalities. It's kind of came down to the energy companies and more and more women get on this renewable train train ride that they're on because they started in the city. They got moved up to a company, took a different job, took a chance like you're talking about. And I think you're only going to continue to see the female workforce really grow in the renewable space. 
Will some of that trickle down to the traditional oil and gas space? Of course, it'll trickle down. I don't think the oil and gas will ever catch the percentage of females in its space like it's taken off in renewables. Yeah, and I think it's it's because it's newer, right? Because, yeah. because historically, oil and gas has been, um, those roles have traditionally been dominated by men. And so I think we are seeing more and more women, um, you know, you look at the Society for Professional Engineers, you look at UH Energy, they have a substantial portion of their of their graduating class are women in engineer fields. And so we are pushing, keep getting those degrees, keep looking for those opportunities. And women should, we really need to drive women in STEM and really help them understand that there are opportunities for them. I think as, as we go through the energy transition, they're going to be less likely to want to be in oil and gas roles because there's a view that those that those roles will start to dwindle over time as demand for fossil goes down. And so where they see the opportunity is in that renewable sector, in that low carbon sector. We've got our BP Ventures organization as well, which is really focused on investing in, in new technology uh, to support the energy transition. That's another area where you'll start to see more and more women because it's a space that doesn't exist and it's a space that we can go in today. We're not battling the historic structures that exist in the oil and gas field. Renewables is relatively new space. Low carbon energy, relatively new space. Great opportunity for women to find their way into those industries and and keep moving forward. But I do think, Mike, to your point, you're right. The, The municipalities, the governments have been particularly good at creating opportunities for women in these spaces. And I think that that's something that I've seen across a number of the different cities and and municipal engagements and and even Department of Energy and elsewhere. There are lots of fantastic women in those types of roles and it's creating opportunities for women everywhere. Real quick, and and we'll move on, but I want to just something you you got me thinking about now. Do we get too caught up in Women have to mentor women. Guys have to mentor guys. I mean, I, listen, after talking to you, after talking to Kay McCall, after talking to the Beth Vons of the world, I mean, listen, I, I mean, listen I'll pick Mike's brain all day, every day after 40 years of, of uh, you know, world-class experience he has. But, I mean, I've learned a lot just from listening to you. I've learned a lot. Of course, you know, you can't help but listen to, to, to Kay. Um, you know, but I've learned a lot from, from folks like yourselves. Do we not focus enough on, I mean, listen, we're all about about diversity, but are we doing enough to do, you know, maybe more co-ed mentorship where it's okay for a young man to go to a Jane Stricker or a Kay McCall and say, hey, let me pick your brain on, on, you know, X, Y, Z? I think it's out there. I think it happened. I just don't think we talk about it as much. You know, a lot of my mentors in in my career have been men. And part of that is a function of having come up in the oil and gas industry and and a lot of the leadership in, in the early days were men. But I think it's as much you find the people that take an interest in you and you find the people you are interested in learning more about or learning from and you create those opportunities where they happen. I'm a firm believer that mentoring shouldn't be some sort of structured process and we shouldn't have goals of having X number of mentors that are from a particular gender or a particular background. I think we should find the people who have knowledge and expertise in an area that we have an interest in and take the opportunity to say, Hey, can you help me learn more about this? You return the favor by sharing something with them that that maybe they didn't know about. I reach out to university students, be they male or female, um, young people cycling regardless of gender and say, you know, if there's something that I can do to help you move forward in your career, 
uh, in your sport in, in whatever way, then let me help you do that. I think we feel like we have to put labels on things, but maybe they just don't need the labels. Maybe we just recognize, you know, an opportunity to mentor when we have it. Well, I might hit you up for some cycling advice uh, at some point <laughs> down the line. Get you out of here with this. You've got obviously the decarbonization efforts are in full swing. You've been on this full, full, you know, full bore for a while now. Uh, we got the climate action plan. We got the sunny side solar development. What's on tap for Jane Stricker in the rest of 2021? And just in your overall opinion, what's the next conversation to have as part of this energy transition? So I think for me, what's on tap is figuring out uh, how to help the city really make a dent in, in getting the, the climate action plan moving forward in Houston um, this year. I mean, the reality is the city has launched this climate action plan across the full suite of emissions that are generated by the city of Houston. The municipality is only accountable for about 3% of those emissions. So if we can't find a way to get businesses, to get residents, and to get the folks there that live and work here in Houston on board, aware, and supporting the climate action plan and its goals, we're not going to make any meaningful change. And so for me, the real focus this year is how do we start to drive that change forward in the city? The city can only do so much. They can create the platform. They can they can help set the right tone, but it's going to be up to everybody moving forward. So that's really what I'm focused on for this year. Uh, and then also supporting our other partnerships as we enter into them. You know, we have a goal of partnering with 10 to 15 cities and with a number of different industries. And so, you know, my role as relationship manager, I support the city of Houston, but I'll also support other partnerships as, as those come along. So that'll be what I'm looking at. When I think about what's next in the energy transition, I think integrated energy systems are really going to be the focus. I think uh, World Economic Forum came out with a, a report in uh, early 2021, in January, that talked about, you know, in order for cities to be successful in addressing climate issues. And the reality is 170 cities have defined a set of goals to achieve 1.5 degrees C. Almost none of them are actually on a path to achieve that. So they've set the goal, but but they don't know how they're going to get there. And so I think what this report from, from World Economic Forum really talked about was the importance of having an integrated solution in order to accomplish it. You can't just deal with the transportation issue. You can't just deal with building efficiency. You have to find a way to connect all those dots and create integrated energy systems in these cities. And so I think, you know, when I think about our capability as BP, what we're focused on, it's about connecting up all those dots and saying, this is how you create an integrated energy system for an industry, for a company, for a city that, you know, addresses the, the, the challenges associated with transportation, that addresses the challenge associated with, with residential and business building emissions, that addresses the challenges of how do you get your supply and demand in equal places, you know, across renewable energy, and so that we can find ways to store the energy that's being created when it's being created and use it when we need it. How do you take all of those pieces and put them together to develop a set of holistic solutions? Houston could essentially be kind of a, a blueprint then for, for some cases for this integrated energy solution. And it's one of the reasons that we wanted to partner with Houston. It is a, it is a learning laboratory to figure out how do you make meaningful change happen? How do you bring together the right resources, the right capabilities, the right partnerships, 
Um, you know, we, we've got partnerships in a couple of buckets. We've got the, the cities that we partner with. We've got the industries that we're partnering with to develop solutions for them. But then we also have industries and businesses that we're partnering with. So whether it's us partnering with Microsoft to find ways to use data to help move things forward in the energy transition, other relationships like that, you know, who, who are the partners that we're working with already that we can bring together to develop those solutions? So we recognize that we can't do it all and that we need to find the right partners that can help us fill in those gaps in our capability so that we can take something to a city or to an industry and say, here's a, here's a holistic solution for you. Thank you for that, Miss Jane Stricker. Once again, you can find all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, as well as the website www.erenew.net. Be sure to check out our brand new short form edition of the podcast, the Green Insider Power Chat Edition. It's the same great guests. It's the same great content you've come to appreciate with the Green Insider, except we get you in and out in 10 minutes or less. We debuted the Power Chat this week with none other than Miss Ann Niemer, COO and co-founder of eRenewable. Great information from her on her start into the energy industry and then her foray into the renewable front. Or a little advice she shares with the young ladies out there as far as breaking into the renewable and energy front. Want to thank everybody for help making episode 31 of the Green Insider possible. Shout out as always to our president and founder, Mr. Mike Niemer. Thank you once again to Jane and and everybody that helps make the Green Insider possible. And oh, don't forget too, for those of you that like to check out the Green Insider on Apple iTunes, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise that you learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than you did before you stopped by. It is the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier.